Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, May 13th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's financial show, we're talking uh, the latest quarters and prospects for Berkshire Hathaway, Markel, a little company people are probably familiar with, Square. Uh, As always, we'll have one to watch, but we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. As I mentioned last week, we recently brought four new analysts onto our investing team here at The Motley Fool, and we wanted to take the opportunity here on Industry Focus and Between Two Fools to introduce you to these analysts. Last week, we had Maria Gallagher. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with TJ Piggott. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, TJ, first things first. For our listeners, tell us who you are and how you got here to The Fool. Hi, Fools. My name is TJ Piggott, and I've been with The Motley Fool for the past four years. Uh, Prior to joining the investment team, I was managing the trading desk for Motley Fool Wealth Management. Yeah, now, that was a little bit different than um, what you're doing now. I mean, your your job description down there managing that trade desk, I think, was a bit more process-oriented versus digging into companies, right? I mean, you weren't doing a lot of research down there, or not as much as you're doing now. Correct. So, mostly what I did was uh, I would implement the portfolio manager's strategy. So, when a client would entrust us with some of their capital mm-hmm. to invest, my team and I would execute those transactions for That's them. It's kind of pressure-packed. I mean, if you fat-finger something, you're putting someone's financial lives in jeopardy, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, you know, the Motley Fool would make the client right, so I'd be putting our company in jeopardy. So, yeah, that's a... Uh, Fat finger is a bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah, in any in any walk of life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, well, I mean, you get to come in here every day like we do, and you get to look at these stocks, and you get to find good ideas and communicate them out to members. Given your investing background, I know you've been investing for a while. Um, one of the challenges I think we all face as investors is trying to figure out what kind of investor one actually is. I know when I got here back in 2010, I had been investing for a long time. My dad introduced it to me, uh, me to it when I was a kid, but I didn't really know what kind of investor I was until I actually got here and started doing it for a little while and was able to take some input and lessons from uh, all of these all of these folks on our investing team. Now that said, what kind of investor do you you what, do you, what kind of investor do you consider yourself today? It, or has that changed or are you still not sure? You value growth somewhere between Sure. So, you know, I've kind of evolved over time. So, um, you know, it's hard to box me into a corner per se. Um, my portfolio is pretty well diversified. Uh, but if you must put me into a style, I'm a growth oriented investor, focusing more on the small cap space. Nobody puts uh, DJ in a corner. No, no, no way. Which is kind of funny progression because when I first got into business back in t- 2006, my mentors were large cap value managers. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of weird going from. <laughs> That to uh, big growth. Well, I mean, it, you know, I think here, especially for a long time, there was a most investors here. I think were of that value nature. I mean, there there was a a, a tremendous uh, lean towards the value side. Definitely, when I got back, I got here back in two thousand and ten, and I think it. I think over time that's changed. I mean, I think we've a lot of us have seen the merits in a lot of these growth names. Obviously, technology has changed a lot of things in a short amount of time. Um, you know, growth is a little bit more of a, of a risky style of investing, perhaps. But frankly, I mean, if you're if you're looking to invest and grow your money, I mean, growth companies are going to represent 
typically those best opportunities. I always found value investing to be really difficult because you not only had to call the right price to actually get into the stock, but then you had to call the right place the right price to actually sell out of the stock. So you essentially had to be right twice. Correct. Growth investing, you kind of just have to be right once. But what do I know? <laughs> um, okay. Time will tell. Well, I guess we'll see. Um, since you got here, since and it needs to be before you even came up here to the investing team, it could apply to when you were downstairs as well. Sure. But what have you learned in regard to investing? Something you've learned that you either weren't expecting or something that surprised you a little bit? So, you know, working in the financial services business for essentially my whole career, um, you know, you're exposed to many different disciplines and, and styles and, and approaching to investing. But what surprised me about coming to the Motley Fool and the investment style here is the emphasis that's placed on the quality of management and corporate governance. Yep. Uh, while that's important to a lot of investment professionals, um, you know, earnings and price targets, usually with short-term mindset uh, and margin expansion, like that seems to dominate the narrative in the news. We're here, that's just noise. It's all about how's the management doing, what are they doing to grow the business for the long term, and the focus on are they aligning their interest and shareholders together? I yeah. think that's the most important thing. That's a big deal. really great. One of the things we did in my uh, analyst development program was a deep dive into a CEO of our choice. And I mean, it was really to learn more about the CEO, the company that he or she was running. Every everything about it. And Kevin Plank was uh, was the one I chose from Under Armour. It was just a lot, a lot to learn. I, I think that you, you really you hit on something there. The focus on management here is 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 big, and um, and and I don't think that'll change either because even even bad management can run a good product into the ground. We've seen that many times. Um, would you? What do you? I mean, this is always an interesting perspective I get when I ask people this. If you have the option. Or the opportunity to meet management versus not meeting management of a company that you've recommended, what would you prefer? Would you rather meet them or not meet them? I would love to meet them. Yeah. I think, you know, yes, they're born salesmen in a lot of ways. Like they're kind of groomed to give off this persona, right? But being able to sit down directly and ask questions that are unscripted, mm -hmm. I think you could tell a lot about a person and what their like fundamental values are. Yeah, and if you can extract that from them, you can really kind of make it a good inference if these guys are really good people and they're doing the right things for their shareholders or not. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I, I was always a little bit stumped by that question, but I, I think I ultimately looked at it the way you do. Is that yeah, they're they're born salesmen. Their their job is to tell you how good the company is and how great Absolutely. of a job the team is doing. But if you can look past that and just try to find the other qualities that you could glean from that conversation, it can give you a better idea of what kind of people they are. Um, you know what, what kind of thinkers they are, short yeah. term versus long term. And it doesn't even have to be about the company specific. You yeah. could just ask them about their background, where they came from, how they developed in their careers. That might give you also a good sense of like what their work ethic has looked like, how they've overcome adversity in their lives, and that's Absolutely. important. Yep, I agree. Uh, okay, so given that you've been investing for a while, uh, what is the best piece of investing advice you've ever gotten? Gee, I mean, I've I've gotten I've heard all the quotes that everybody here has heard. So you know, you Careful know, when others are greedy. Buffett, of course. <laughs> uh, Bill Miller, one of them I received was uh, lowest average cost wins. Yeah. Um, you know, Shelby Colm Davis, which I don't know if anybody here on uh, on this show might uh, know, but it's from the Davis Advisors. Yeah. Um, 
pretty much you said that you make most of your money in a bear market. You just don't realize it at the time. That's a good point. Um, those are all great, right? I love those quotes. Great investment advice. But my mentor, when I first got in the business, he told me, um, and it's always stuck with me, is pay yourself first. <laughs> and, you know, all these things that we do here, you know, about growing wealth and investing, you have to have capital to do that. Yep. And a lot of times people get caught up in, I want that fresh new toy or that, you know, that nice iPhone or the gray expensive car. Those are short-term gratification things, and they, those things feel good. Yeah. But the reality is you don't really need that, right? Well, you need to be invested in yourself and your family and yourself's financial future. So pay yourself first, put that money away, invest it, and over the long term, you'll be able to get whatever you want. I like that. You know, I've always considered myself very fortunate. I'm not much of a stuff guy. And if you give me, if I run into a windfall, I'm not going to go buy stuff. I'm going to go buy stocks. <laughs> I would much rather own the stocks. Um, you know, my dad always, always taught me you're never going to buy at the bottom and you're never going to sell at the top. So just get used to it and start investing. And, yep. I, and I think that was something that always, always stuck with me. Um, Tell us and, and our listeners uh, beyond investing. Let's sure. talk about TJ for a second here. What? Tell us something interesting about you. Tell us something that has happened in your life, something unique, something you think people should know. So um, I'm an adrenaline junkie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if that comes across. What do you like? Bungee jumping and stuff. I, I haven't done that yet, uh, but I love to go fast and I love to live a little bit on the edge. Huh. Um, not so much nowadays because I have a child. Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, my wife she was uh, she embraced that before we had our kid, and so I got some really cool gifts, like oh, wow. experiences. Like what? Oh, okay. So um, one is I was able to take off and fly a single engine Cessna. They oh wow! Let, they didn't let me land it. Right? That's a little uh, little bit more dangerous. Difficulty is a little bit higher. Yeah, but still. Uh, that was pretty cool, and also I got to drive a NASCAR at Richmond International. Speedway. No way! Yeah, how fast were you able to get it going? So here's the thing: they don't put the speedometer in the car. No. Nor do they put the rearview mirror in there either. They <laughs> want you just listening to your spotter, because they you're going so fast. One, they don't want you to try to go as fast as you possibly can to one up your buddies, right? Because you'll put yourself in the wall. That's not good. No, those cars are expensive. Yeah, but two, I mean, you could hurt yourself for sure. Uh, but it's an amazing experience. One thing that I, I realized also is these guys are much, much crazier than I am, <laughs> because as I'm driving, it's a live course, so it's not just me on the track; it's everybody else, and they stagger you out so you can't catch up. Well, they do ride-alongs and ride-alongs with a professional like driver. And all of a sudden, my spotter says, hit the apron. And I go down an apron, and as I'm turning down, here goes two cars, like, speeding past me like a fighter jet. And I was like, and I thought I was going fast. <laughs> wow. You got a life insurance policy, TJ. Absolutely. Good, good. Absolutely. Just checking. Yeah. Just checking. I'm not sure if that covers it, but hey, you know. <laughs> well, let's wrap this up today because, you know, you're here to talk stocks, to learn about stocks, to communicate those ideas and your learnings to our members. And it's a lot of fun to do. Um, and I wanted to, normally we like to wrap these interviews up with a book recommendation, but given given uh, given that I've got you here today and you're an analyst here on our team, what is a stock that you like today and why? Okay, I have a goodie for you. All right. You guys ready? Ready. Okay. So, I am really excited about a company called Globant. Um, it's a global technology and digital consultant firm um, that is bringing its A-game against some of the best-known consultant firms in the world. Uh, so their goal is essentially to help their clients remain relevant in the digital age 
by creating what they call meaningful digital journeys to end customers. Globend. Yeah. Never heard of it. It's great. You know, it hits a lot of things that, you know, the Motley Fool cares about. Um, it's founder-led and still controlled uh, by four Argentinians um, who saw an opportunity to tap the excellent source of Latin American IT professionals that a lot of people weren't, weren't taken advantage of uh, or leveraging, I should say. They have client relationships with some of the most recognized brands in the world, such as Disney, Coca-Cola, American Express, Southwest Air, EA Sports. I mean, the list goes on and on, but I think you guys get, get the point of um, who they're impacting. Um, they've built over 300 mobile apps for smartphones and wearables. Oh, wow. And they've developed uh, streaming platforms where billions of videos have been watched. Huh. So smaller company too looks like about a three billion dollar market cap. So maybe there's a maybe there's a nice a nice growth story there to tell. A great growth story, and you know, let's talk about growth because we can't forget about that, right? So revenue has been growing at a healthy clip. We're about twenty seven percent compounding annual growth rate on revenue uh, since twenty fourteen. Uh, so this past year, they they brought in about five hundred twenty two million dollars with a net income of around call it fifty two million. So they're not large yet, but they're getting there. All right, good stuff. Well, I'm sure that's uh, sure that's one that most of our listeners probably haven't had a chance to dig into. So that's neat. They got a good idea out of this thing. TJ Pigott, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And joining me now in the studio via the magic of technology and Skype. Although, you know, I wonder with Skype, I mean, Matt, maybe we need to be using Zoom. I don't know, but Matt Frankel, certified financial planner. <laughs> Matt, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you up there? Oh, it's it's you know we keep on keeping on here. Uh, yeah, you know I was thinking Zoom is now public. It's it's a company that a lot of us have dug into and we like it a lot. I wonder if we're going to integrate that into our services here and start using that one day for these for these shows. Not that we've had any problems with Skype. I mean, Skype has worked wonderfully. Um, Skype part of the Microsoft family, of course. Hey, let's, it's nice to have options, right? <laughs> Definitely. Have you, do you have any experience with Zoom? I do not. Well, yeah. So we use it a decent bit here at HQ. Um, as a matter of fact, I just had to use it the other day. We were putting some windows in, putting a lot of windows in in our house, which meant I had to be at home all day, and I had a meeting at work at nine o'clock. So we, I zoomed in from home, and uh, it's just very slick, easy. It always works, and I think that's one of the things they've always sold themselves on is it's a cloud-based solution built for video conferencing as opposed to one of these tech companies that kind of added uh, video conferencing to the mix there. But, but I mean, you know, the technology's slick. It always does seem to work, and uh, it, it's easy even for a dummy like me. So, I mean, hey, I've got that one on my sh- you know <laughs> watch list of stocks to, to keep an eye on. Um, but, hey, listen, we'll, co- we'll continue with Skype. Uh, like I said, it works just fine. Um, Matt, we wanted to get in first this week. We've had a big uh, past few weeks here in regard to Berkshire Hathaway. We had the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. We had earnings. There's always you know, a slew of content that comes out a little bit before and a little bit after with Charlie and Warren throwing all those bromides and their opinions around and everybody's nitpicking and reading too much into them. But wanted to jump into Berkshire Hathaway this week, talk about the company, earnings, the meeting, anything really uh, you wanted to get into. But uh, what did you think about the the, the company's quarter and, and what did you think about uh, what you took away from the meeting? Well, the meeting's always fun. I'm actually making plans to go next year because oh, I've nice. been putting it off and putting it off and I won't have a baby at the house next year. So, it seems like a <laughs> And Warren Buffett will be about 90 at that point, so it seems like a good time as any. 
Will that be your first meeting? It will. I've never yeah. been. I yeah, I went once. I can tell you, you'll love it. You, you know, and make sure because you're coming from the fool. Get that fool press badge. You will not regret it. I promise. It's good advice. Um, but the meeting, it's always fun. I mean, and it the Q&A session lasts about six hours, so there's no possible way I can cover everything <laughs> they said right here. Um, one of the coolest developments, the most interesting developments that I noticed was that um, the succession plan at Berkshire has been a hot topic over the past few years. And this is the first time that it wasn't just Buffett and Munger talking. Um, they were the, still the two that were on the stage, but Buffett called on his new vice chairman, um, Ajit Jain and Greg Abel, more than once to answer investor questions and stand up at the meeting and, you know, actually, you know, kind of run the show for a minute. And yeah. it's the first time that's happened. So, again, like you said, everyone always reads it way too much to what happens at the Berkshire <laughs> meeting. So I'm not going to read too much into it, but I every year it seems like they're taking one more step toward having a concrete succession plan. Yeah. And this is kind of the latest step in that. That was one of the kind of key developments I've seen. The rest of it you can read about. I wrote an article about some of the big takeaways that I will put out on Twitter shortly after this. Um, But as far as the earnings, because the meeting is such a big event, I mean, you know, it it fills up an arena. That's what all the shareholders are fixated on. Everyone forgets that Berkshire actually releases an earnings report that morning. <laughs> yep. Uh, it just becomes kind of a side issue of the day. Um, I wrote an article on both the earnings and the meeting, and the, the one about the meeting got like eight times as much traffic as the earnings article. Oh, I believe it. So it's definitely like an afterthought, but that's a lot of significant information. So just real quick, um, Berkshire's earnings are kind of meaningless just because they reflect the stock portfolio, which aren't really earnings until they sell anything. So... Don't pay too much attention to that, but just some of the key numbers. Uh, operating earnings, which excludes the stock portfolio, rose about 5% year over year, which, you know, it's solid. You don't invest in Buffett because you think he's going to grow 30 40% year over year. You want steady, consistent growth, and that's exactly what we're getting. Uh, the cash stockpile grew, not surprisingly. Uh, Berkshire's got over $114 billion in cash right now, um, not including the $10 billion investment that was announced after the quarter ended. Um, so there's still, even after that, there's still well over a hundred billion dollars of cash sitting there. Don't discount the possibility of a big acquisition coming in 2019. If you remember, that was one of my bold predictions of the, at the beginning of the year. Still and, plenty um, of time to go. I stand by it. I think it's going <laughs> to happen. Uh, so far I'm pretty, I'm pretty accurate with those, but, um, Apple retook its trillion dollar market cap. That was my first victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and we're just, just into May. So it could, it, we have plenty of time. Um, Berkshire also in terms of buybacks. Well, the company bought back less than half of 1% of its stock during the quarter. It's still more than it bought back all of last year after it you know, changed their buyback program to let Buffett buy back more. Yeah. Um so that tells us that Berkshire is considers its stock cheap, especially at the, you know, low 200s where it was most of the first quarter. Um and the last thing from the earnings that I want to emphasize is that is what we don't know yet. In Berkshire's earnings report, they don't disclose what they've been doing in their stock portfolio, which is pretty much what all their investors want to know every quarter. Right. You know, what's Berkshire buying and selling? That's the you know big hot topic. We don't find that out until the uh, company releases its newest 13F, which should happen on the 15th. So in about six days, you'll we'll get some color into what Berkshire bought and sold. It looks like they spent a few billion dollars on on stock purchases this quarter. So I'm curious to see what they bought. Well, we know they got Amazon in there, which I think that was that was um, 
It took, I guess, a lot of people by surprise. I mean, I guess I understand that. I mean, Buffett was very clear it was one of the other fellows, uh, either Todd or Ted, that actually uh, spearheaded that purchase, I think. Um, I mean, I guess better late than never, right? But gee whiz, I mean, it, <laughs> Amazon's almost a $1 trillion company. It, it, you know, man, I mean, that's just, it's a shame they didn't decide to take that plunge earlier. But by the same token, it really, I think, speaks to the opportunity that they must see still exists. Right, and I think Buffett um, has a, he has a track record of pre-announcing things that the company bought only when it wasn't him doing it. Yeah, just because he doesn't want you know the 13F to come out and everybody in the world says, "Oh my God, Warren Buffett just bought Amazon." <laughs> so he wants to make it very clear that this wasn't him; it was one of his stock pickers. Yeah, which lately, honestly, those two have had a better track record picking stocks than Buffett has. Yeah, but just the the headlines that would grab you know Warren Buffett likes Amazon. Could you imagine what that stock would do the next day? If I, I really, that? I really can't. As a matter of fact, I mean, it is <laughs> you know as as well as it's done to this point. I, I could I could imagine there would be a a nice little pop, the Buffett pop there. Um, well, I mean, you know, every year with the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, the typically the next day, the next morning, there's what's called the Markel brunch. Um, and I went to the the meeting once, and we did the meeting, the Berkshire meeting, and then we did the Markel brunch the following morning, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, Markel, uh, you know, they time this out to where their earnings come out generally the same basic time as well. So we'll look into their quarter real quick. Um, not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, to dissect there, but operating revenues for the quarter of two and a half billion dollars were up from one point six billion dollars from a year ago. Gross written premiums were one point seven million dollars for the first three months of the of the year versus one point six million last year. Um, and it you know the combined ratio of ninety five percent was a little bit higher than the ninety uh, from a year ago, but that's the nature of insurance. We always just want to see that insure uh, that that combined ratio below hundred. And, and over time, Markel has done a very good job of doing that. Book value for the stock book value is is now at seven hundred six dollars ninety eight cents. Uh, up eight percent from six hundred and fifty three dollars and eighty five cents at the end of two thousand and eighteen, and book value, of course, is a measure we use uh, to value insurance companies. I wouldn't call Markel cheap by any means; it's somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half times book. But you know, hey, listen, it's a high quality business. I can think of worse places to worse places to put your money. Um, if you remember the the headline a few months ago, the investigation into one of the uh, reinsurance businesses, uh, there is no news to this point on how that is proceeding. They just just didn't have anything to release there, uh, so so nothing really to speak of there. But Markel Ventures, that wing of the business that starts and in, you know they're investing in and buying wholly uh, owned businesses there, um, that was up revenues four hundred fifty five million dollars for the quarter. That's really just turning into a nice uh, revenue generator for the business. I really like it. And their investment portfolio, um, all in all, saw six hundred twelve million dollar net investment gains in the equity portfolio. Uh, you look at some of those stocks that Markel holds, and, and Amazon has been in there for a while. It's one thing. I've, one of the things I've liked about Tom Gaynor and team is they have been a little bit more forward-looking in that regard. Perhaps it's because they're a little bit younger, um, but but regardless, if you look at their holdings, you see some of those those tech. Uh, oriented names that really have done so well over the past several years. Uh, and, and so I suspect with Markel, listen, I just look for the red flags to give me pause or to give me a reason not to own the stock. I don't find them in this quarter. I think, uh, you know, we see them keep on doing what they're doing and, and everything seems to be working out well. Good company to own. I own it myself. 
if you don't own it out there and you're listening to this show, I encourage you to put it on your watch list. It's, it's a, a nice one to look at in this uh, environment of these really lofty valuations and unprofitable businesses. Speaking of unprofitable businesses, Matt, let's talk a little bit about Square, because while Square isn't necessarily yet to that sustainable profitability, it's coming soon. It's right around the corner. Looked like it was a pretty good quarter. Uh, why don't you break down the latest in Square's earnings and what you see coming up for the business? Sure. Um, well, just kind of on an adjusted basis, Square actually made a profit, first yeah. of all. Yeah. Um, adjusted. <laughs> well, I've made big... the argument for a while. That it seems like we live in this non-gap adjusted world now, and so no matter what, I mean, you can pretty much adjust anything at this point. And it's like, hey, honey, did you take the dishes out of the dishwasher? Well, no, but if you adjust it back to what I, if do I wish I did it? Yes. So adjusted, I did unload the dishwasher, but in reality, I didn't. It does feel like we live in this adjusted world now, but but I digress. Go go on, right? Man. Like if I. If I, if I ask my wife what she spent shopping the other day, she could say, well, well, excluding one-time purchases, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't spend anything. They babe, they're all um, one-time purchases. <laughs> but anyway, so Square, um, the numbers look great pretty much all around. There was a little bit of a, um, some guidance that uh, Square raised its revenue guidance for the second quarter, for the year, but not its earnings guidance. Um but I mean, just the numbers look great all around. Fifty-nine uh, percent increase in adjusted revenue. Even if you back out acquisitions, it's forty-nine percent year over year. That's amazing growth, to, especially since it's been sustained for you know five or six years now. Yeah. Um, pay, gross payment volumes up over twenty percent. Subscription service revenue was the big standout. It more than doubled. It was up one hundred twenty-six percent year over year. And Square said one of the biggest reasons reasons is the cash up. Which I've been saying is the biggest growth engine that Square has, and it's going to really surprise people over the long run. Um, the Square Capital made fifty percent more loans than it did year over year, and they're expecting similar uh, revenue increase in the second quarter. So there's really not a whole lot not to like about how Square's been doing lately. Yeah, you know, I was looking at that myself. I mean, I agree. I think I think Cash App today, while it's not this big monetizable engine, I mean, it really is a great engagement tool. And, and I think what it does is it gets people into that Square um, ecosystem, and, and it just you're 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 doing more with the services that they're offering. I mean, we use the Cash App for uh, just with our daughters, and, and you know. Paying them money for chores done or whatever, me you know, if I need to give them money for whatever, it just it, it is very seamless and easy to use. Um, it's it's interesting to see uh, also as Square continues and they made the Weebly acquisition and they're going into a little bit more of the e-commerce side. You know, they're competing a little bit more with Shopify. Shopify getting into the hardware game now as well, and we know they use Stripe as a payment provider. Um, so it, it's really neat to see Shopify and Square. Evolving and really starting to become market leaders, and obviously, what is a very big market. Um, and I noted last week, uh, the you look at Square and Shopify together, the market's essentially valuing the same, but Square brings in about three times the revenue of Shopify at this point. So, you know, it's just an interesting difference in expectations there. Uh, both very good businesses, we, I mean, we like them both here at the Fool, but um. Yeah, I think that again, you look for the red flags in something like that, and we just don't see them. So I think, uh, you know, if you own shares of Square, you still ought to feel really good about it. It sounds like you feel that way too. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I bought Square shortly after its IPO, and I haven't sold one share, and I don't plan on doing it. I can't. I haven't. I haven't added much just because every time I want to add, I, I you know, you know, I talk about <laughs> it on here and tell everyone else to add. <laughs> yeah. So well, hopefully, we... some people have taken my advice, like back when it dropped into the forties late last year, when I wanted to buy it but couldn't shut up about it. So. Well, Hopefully somebody took my advice. I'm sure. I'm sure many did. I'm sure many did. Those pesky trading guidelines, but we have to adhere to them. Uh, okay, Matt, let's wrap it up this week. As always, with one to watch. What is a stock you've got your eye on this week? Well, I am going to change what I plan to talk about and mention Markel. Um, I after hearing what you said, there's one thing really stood out to me. You said Markel's not a cheap stock at one and a half times book. But just to kind of put that in perspective, that's almost exactly where Berkshire is right now. And when you they're trading at the same valuation, and which one has more growth potential over time? So if you can get Markel for the same valuation price to book as Berkshire, I would pay that all day for the the growth potential long term. Well, I like that. I like that uh, perspective there. I agree. I think Mar- Markel clearly, as a smaller business, has more growth prospects there, and that's an interesting point there on the valuation. So. Uh, hey, listen, every once in a while, you got to call an audible, man. Good call there. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with a company probably a lot of listeners out there have heard of to this point now. Still relatively new on the markets, but DocuSign. Uh, DocuSign is the cloud-based e-signature solution that probably everyone has used at this point. You may not even realize you've used it, but uh, you know, when you have to sign any kind of a document, and I'm talking about anything from loans to insurance papers to you know anything really of, of contractual agreement, uh, DocuSign is is one of the market leaders there in making sure that uh, you get those documents signed, and then they're able to manage the the the, the workflow of of those. Documents, and I think that's really for me what the interesting part about the business is as they evolve and become more than just this e-signature business. Um, you know, it, it was it was a company built very much on the technology of today uh, in the cloud, which is encouraging a strong balance sheet there with uh, you know close to eight hundred million dollars on the balance sheet, and they've. You know, we talk about unprofitable businesses. DocuSign is one of those, but again, still relatively new to the public markets, and they're working way they're working their way to profitability uh, pretty quickly. They reported another really good quarter. Uh, they added twenty three thousand new customers. They have a global base of now closing in on five hundred thousand customers. Uh, just you know, a lot of interesting things about this business. It's got a lot of qualities we like, and um, I own shares myself, and I think it's certainly one that uh, listeners ought to take a look at as well. Uh, but with that, Matt, I guess we'll wrap it up. I appreciate you being here this week. Of course, always fun to be there. All right, man. In, and as, in, remotely, remotely, remotely. Well, yeah, we'll get you back in here soon enough. Soon <laughs> enough. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan the Man Boy. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.